Awesome. Okay, well, we'll first just start off by introducing ourselves. This is the official Bring the Jury live podcast where we come on here and talk about different um, criminal cases happening around the nation. If you have joined us before, then you've probably heard us talk about the Murdoch case. Um, we covered that pretty heavily um, for like two weeks. This is Luke Sheely and this is Brian Sheely. They are the twins of the namesake, the Sheely Law Firm here in South Carolina. Um, this is episode 11 of our vodcast podcast. All of our podcasts are recorded live on TikTok as you're watching us here and then uploaded to YouTube. So if you ever have to dip out, miss some pieces, you can always watch the full episode on YouTube. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, yeah, all, all the places. So we'll just go ahead and jump right in. Um, so we're talking about Brian Koberger. He is currently charged with the killings of four Idaho college students. Um, and we're just going to kind of dive into where we're at with, with that. Yeah, and we have been covering the Murdoch case a good bit, and um, the Coburg case is certainly compelling. It's interesting. You know, it's also kind of in its infancy, um, meaning he was recently charged. I mean, this is like a November slaying of these roommates, um, and we're now here in March. So, I mean, it's a case in Idaho that he's certainly charged with four counts of murder. Um, it's also death penalty eligible. Um, and so I don't think any decision has been made on that, but it's, it's a case that's literally kind of unfolding from an evidentiary standpoint right before our eyes. And we just, we're kind of viewing some unsealed court documents that kind of have allowed us to get some, you know, access into what evidence there is. Luke, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it, the case obviously has got a lot of national attention because it's very tragic. You have these four college kids in the prime of their lives who were snuffed out for no apparent reason. And I remember when this case made the news that they, you know, you kind of always watch the news and you expect that they're going to find somebody in the next day or two. But this was one of those cases where it took, you know, weeks or something to get a suspect. And it was, you know, I kept re recalling reports about the authorities trying to calm people down, but everybody's like, well, how can I be calm when we don't, there's a killer on the loose. And and we're just perusing the unsealed search warrant affidavits today. It was it was pretty interesting to kind of see what what law <clears throat> enforcement did. And, before, and for for non legally trained folks out there, um, this is a real wealth of knowledge because when law enforcement you know requests a you know a search warrant and order from a judge allowing them to, to access something like cell phone records or a search warrant for someone's home. They have to basically establish the reasons why they should get that. They have to establish um, probable cause um, to, to get there. And so the affidavit by the law enforcement officer really explains what they've done so far and then what they expect to receive. And it, and it has to meet the threshold of probable cause for a judge to sign off on that. If a judge didn't feel that probable cause was there, the judge would say, no, I'm not going to give you this authority. And then typically... Once a search warrant is authorized, um, they have 10 days to execute it, basically meaning seize the material that they're seeking. Sorry, Luke, I just wanted to... Yeah, no, that's good. And, and I guess another point, probably why this case, other than obviously the four deceased, why it would get such national attention is who they ultimately arrested and charged is this guy who's a PhD student at a local college who has no prior record... He's studying criminology. He's got a, a master's in like some kind of forensic science. He was a teacher's assistant who, per public, you know, accounting of it was kind of on the outs, kind of uh, not getting along with his, you know, lead professors and some of the students. And then so it's kind of got that sensational life imitating art kind of vibe about it if you if you want to believe the process didn't he like volunteer at a sheriff's office or something yeah yeah he i think they've uncovered some letter he wrote to the local sheriff's department wanting to intern and describing what an asset he would be regarding forensic collection it's kind of got that kind of 
Hannibal Lecter kind of like really planned, weird. I mean, when you vibe about it, when you're getting a PhD in criminology, I mean, essentially, you're getting an education that will allow yourself to work in law enforcement potentially. I mean, that typically these folks come out and are working for local law enforcement. Um, they're trained in patterns, are trained in evidence review, um, and they're all going into law enforcement, and then maybe after a career in law enforcement, maybe they get out and do some kind of private consulting work, but these guys are all going, I mean, someone like like him, in theory, would love to go work for the FBI, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, we, I mean, we did, is the ring light supposed to be on? Oh, yeah, I can get the ring light. Okay, just check it I mean, as part of the... And we have daylight saving. Yeah, it's, we do. It's switched over now, so we, we do have more illumination in this building. Just thinking about the whole criminologist kind of background. I mean, we, as part of our Murdoch coverage, did a podcast with kind of a renowned PhD criminologist and like forensic person. And so she had that similar background in her infancy, but it's, you know, it's all designed to help catch the bad guy. And so if you end up being charged as the bad guy, it does have that kind of special, strange feel where you... I can guarantee if in a trial one day there'll be a closing argument where the state will be saying that this guy is life imitating art and he's wanting to test his skills in real life and see what he can get away with. Um, so that's kind of the backdrop of, of why I think this case has got such national attention is really the, the tragicness of it, but also the who they ended up charging. It, it wasn't just you know a boyfriend gone rogue high on meth who just made a terrible decision it was this kind of non-relative non-associate person nearby seemingly with no motive who would want to kind of test his skills if if all this is to be believed obviously he's innocent until proven you know guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but that seems to be the setup of the state's theory here i mean the stranger murders are really the ones that are less understandable and therefore more compelling. I mean, people can understand the domestic slang. They can understand jealousy. They can understand issues with money. They can understand arguments that get, you know, escalated very quickly in terms of self-defense or defense of others. But the real kind of stranger slaying is something that really is, is hard to, to, to wrestle that, that kind of concept. And, you know, law enforcement is always looking for motive. And so, like Luke said, you know, the fact that he's, you know, getting an elevated degree in criminology and has kind of had some weird-ish kind of like studies and requests that he's got. Mm -hmm. So law enforcement will be looking all through that. They're going to be looking into his entire, as we speak right now, they're building a case against him in terms of his behavior. Um, but they will make an argument that is irrelevant to get out before a jury at some point in the future. Right. So I think this will be one of the ones that we cover periodically. And so we just wanted to kind of deep dive a little bit, look at some of the publicly available documents, which would be some of the search warrants and the returns, which really gives an app, you know, in every search warrant, the officer has to provide their affidavit for probable cause. And it's, it's lengthy because here the suspect wasn't immediately available. So it, it does show a very good job by law enforcement you know, really canvassing, going through just probably hundreds of videos around the area, neighbors, street cams. You know, they were able to put the victims at certain places based on video, such as like a food truck, based on a, on, you know, a, a real-time Twitch account. You know, they're figuring out in real time who's where, who's doing what. We've got a timeline. Just like in the Murdoch case, we've got yeah, we will. we've got a timeline. So law enforcement, you know, we could talk about what they found on this very bloody scene initially. That was a, the most critical piece of evidence, and there's probably two that we'll talk about in a second. But they they basically have identified a timeline of the killings based on their own use of their devices, based on roommates' accounts. So we're looking at a, a again a pretty tight timeline of 4 a.m. to 425 is when law enforcement believes the killer they believe Brian Koberger would have entered this house killed four of these people now two of the victims are in, in a bed together um, in terms of minimum you know shortening that time frame of not having to go to four bedrooms but but you know 
three there and then leaving the scene. Um, and I think that timeline even like zoomed out in a way. I saw something that was talking about how there was like a search warrant that was served on him, like even years or like a year before. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't hear why, like any suspicious activity or what his involvement was, but you know, he's like kind of been on law enforcement's radar, maybe even before leading up to this. I know you said he's never been criminally charged, but you know, maybe just some weird behaviors or questionable decisions, behavior. And, and he was trying to like intern at a local yeah. law enforcement uh, agency. Um, and we're talking about the Idaho Four, um, Brian Koberger, for anyone who did just log on. I think I saw that question, but. Right, I think some of his traffic stops would end up corroborating some of the cell phone evidence. Yeah. And they would use the... That's how they ended up getting his cell phones, per this affidavit, is they they got a timeline, they got his car, they started tracking his name through their own system, and saw that even though it was like a minor traffic stop, he's given up his cell phone, which they then tracked down, found it was with AT&T, got this wealth of historical data, which, you know... You got so much information in your phone, as all of y'all know from the Murdoch case. But for a starting point, you can tell which which nearest tower it's searching to ping off of to put you in a general triangulation in relation to that those tower panels. And so they had that data, which helped build their case. But this, I mean, what's we'll about the crime scene? Yeah, exactly. the crime scene. Let's start there before we get ahead of ourselves. So yeah, we'll we'll get into this, how they got to the cell phone records but basically they come into this bloody crime scene they're interviewing the living witnesses and they're you know some there's one of the decedents is is essentially ordered from DoorDash so that's interesting from a defense perspective um, but essentially the big piece of evidence they find in this case that that helps them a lot right now probably the biggest piece of state evidence is they find a K-bar style knife Sheath that would hold an edge blade. Um, they find it right on the bed next to two of the victims that are in a in a bed together, and they basically are able to extract a male DNA profile, a singular male DNA profile, off of the button snap of this sheath. And so they basically, you know, the way DNA works is they can extract a profile and they can enter it into a national b- database, CODIS. But often if you have the profile of someone that's not in that database, then you have to compare it against something else to make a match. And we'll talk about that in a second. So that's a really big key piece of evidence that becomes important later. And the second thing that I don't think Luke maybe is ready to talk about, but I did know is, again, like, like the Murdoch case, they do find or there is evidence of a latent shoe print. Um, apparently this was a carpeted style house and right outside of the bedroom of one of the victims, they're able to observe a print and, and, um, basically extract a print, um, digitally with photographing it. And, and the, you know, the law enforcement investigator that's looking at this case is surmising. I don't know if this is a complete analysis yet, that it is very remarkably similar to a van style sneaker. So they've got this sheath that they later identify with a male singular DNA profile, and they've got this latent print they're able to pull for a van style shoe or something similar to it. But Luke, you know, talk about how they how do they get from a singular male DNA profile all the way to what we'll talk about later, a potential match of evidence against Brian Koberger. Talk about how we get there. You want me to jump to the very end? Well, just give us the history of how they how do they get how do they get into his trash? Let's talk about that. And this is just an interesting piece of information. We're you know all kind of learning TikTok together, but apparently you can't say this word. So just being mindful of it. Uh, I mean, there are some. I mean, there are times when we've said other things. <laughs> I think it's just if you just repeatedly say that word. Thank you so much okay, for that tip. Thank you. Okay. But even like the comments are like um, hmm. editing it. So. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not going to answer your question just yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, but we'll set the table for. Part us. of the crime scene that I found interesting was that you've got this this witness, this poor young roommate who in the. Report is listed as DM to save her identity. I think her identity being, identity has been somewhat revealed um, post this. But she hears all this commotion. She thinks it might be 
the DoorDash guy. It might be her roommate playing with the dog. But when she, after looking out of her door a few times, on the third time or so, she sees this figure as 5'10", male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. And he just walked past her as she stood there and went out the sliding glass door. So you got to think about what she's going through. She described herself as a froze, frozen shock phase. Um, and right in front of her is where they kind of find this van shoe footprint. And I was researching online. I, mean, I know some internet sleuths and others have found apparently that house had numerous noise violation complaints. Mm. I mean, these folks... Young people in college, clearly they, they got back around 2 a.m. that night. It was a college house. It's a college house. And so someone posted Living some... Right. I mean, hey, what were we doing in college? Same yeah. thing. But like, they, someone posted a video of body cams of an officer responding to a noise complaint from one of these um, roommates who is answering the door in van shoes. Mm. So people were saying, well, the van's... You know, is it a roommate walking through? Is it really going to mean much? I mean, we can tell from the search warrant return listing items they found at Koberger's house that there weren't any vans. But, of course, I mean, they didn't find a a wealth of bloody clothes or knives or anything else because I imagine police will say, and we'll talk about the timeline, that he took the opportunity to get rid of that stuff on the ride home. But it's, it's interesting. You had the dog who was reported to have been barking you know, police again went went right away looking, canvassing for video. And this is where I thought they did a good job because that was their big break. And between, they found a, I think a doorbell cam next door that was 50 feet from one of the victim's rooms that was hearing this dog barking and this kind of loud thud. Again, that would help with the timeline. That helps, yeah. that helps them with their timeline. I mean, it is 25 minutes to kill four people by hand, essentially. So like, You've got this concept that we'll talk about is that they will say he planned this for so long to test his skills as a criminologist that he's got this axe to grind against the world and he thinks he's clever, yet he left the sheath of this knife that he used right there. So that's kind of one of these we used to have, um, our old boss used to talk about inconsistencies in cases like that where you say... Well, my client, I mean, he could have done it because it's so dumb to, like, you know, do something like that. Leave your ID on the crime or leave your, your sheath of your huge marine K-bar knife. And the, and the old school country prosecutor used to say, well, we don't catch the smart ones. Right, right. So that, that's kind of like, but the, the, the state will ultimately have to say, well, you're saying he's so smart that some of the smart things he does is consistent with criminality and planning in advance a crime, but yet we have to also accept that the dumb stuff that he does to break your case, such as leave his DNA on the sheath of a Marine-style K-bar knife, is just soppiness. So I don't know. That's that's, that's real interesting. They did. When the police arrived to his house, he was caught actually like in the act of well. I guess they can't prove yet if it was evidence or not, but he was wearing these like latex medical gloves, taking things in the trash, but like putting them in individual Ziploc bags. And then I think some had ended up in the uh, neighbor's trash can. I may be mixing up parts of this story, but Hmm. so it's like you have something that's so calculated and like meticulous, but then like big doof. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, how does a knife, sheath that which presumably is like clipped onto your person how does that get left at a crime scene well it gets left in a struggle well potentially i mean you're not going to carry a huge knife like that in your pocket necessarily so it, it would be in a sheath whether it's on your person or not but you'd have to unsheath it to do a crime and so it's just like yeah in that struggle you might leave it but it'd be pretty dumb to do that well i guess in this um affidavit for the search warrant which is still early days in law enforcement's case mm-hmm. and there's going to be layers so if you're cooking and this is a uh, you know getting chop an onion they peeled back a singular layer so we don't have enough to even put in the in the pan yet but they've got one layer of the onion coming back there'll be you know 10 15 20 30 more layers in this case but i guess i'd, I'd be curious to know if he did leave a sheath 
I would I would likely think that would be you know bounced off his belt loop or either dropped in his hand because he's you know he's stabbing two individuals at the same time and they're putting up a fight. So I guess the question is, right. is his DNA under their fingernails? Um, that would be I haven't heard anything about that yet. That would be the next layer of testing that could right. either really help the prosecution's case. Or hurt it, and again, if, if there's evidence and his, and his skin is there from a struggle, which often can happen when you're repelling your assailant, um, that would be a really good piece of evidence for law enforcement. If it's not there, then magically, you know, law enforcement will say, "Well, it doesn't mean anything that's not there. It could have just he, he was, you know, just fortunate not to have it, and he was he was very, you know, heavily clothed and had gloves on, those kind of stuff. Um, so that would be interesting to see if anything turns up underneath their fingernails." So where I will give law enforcement credit again is they really went to the videos in that small town and kind of, com- it sounds like they combined numerous videos from different sources that we don't exactly know, but we can assume they're residences, businesses, and that King Road area, they basically pinpointed a white sedan that they would call suspect vehicle one traveling, you know, I'm not familiar with that part, but 700 block of Indian Hills Drive in Moscow, 326. Didn't have a front license plate, so they weren't they weren't pinning his license through this and going, aha. Um, and it started making three initial passes, 329 to 420, make some turns, drive back, um, almost as if, in my mind, they talked about finally making a three-point turn, it sounded like a DoorDash driver that was lost. Like I had my DoorDash driver last night who missed my house several times. It was still light even. And I was like, I see he's here. What's taking so long? He just didn't know the area. He didn't see my number. So it's either consistent with that. And we know they also ordered DoorDash or it's consistent with the killer. But the, the officer, as he's trying to convince a judge to give him permission to get into your personal data information, your home, to surpass muster, um, says that in his experience, only a few cars would enter and exit that area during that time frame. So this is the, the car of interest. They then went and extrapolated and said, all right, we need, they kind of figured out loosely the path of the same car getting out of town and heading in the direction. And I can just say in terms right. of, in terms of our four, what was our timeline again? I said it was four o'clock and 425. So that's the initial killing timeline now if they believe that this car that luke referenced and law enforcement does it you know that it narrows the timeline further so law enforcement says that the fourth time that it passes the residence um and it's kind of doing like a three-point turn and presumably it's going to park someplace they don't see they don't say that it parks on video they say there's a three-point turn at 404 a.m and then goes out of view and so presumably if this is the killer's car, excuse me, the, the person that did this car, you know, you've, you're parking at 404, you're entering the home, and then they say they, they see this car leaving at a high rate of speed at 420. Right. So that kind of shortens so the timeline. 16 line. minutes to kill four people. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a, a shortening window um, if you give it time to go into a home and then leave a home as well, you know. It shortens it even further. So we've got, let's say, a 15-minute window now. So then he says, I believe that the suspect vehicle likely exited the neighborhood at Palouse River Drive and Conestoga Drive, and that this is the southern edge of Moscow and proceeds into Whitman County, Washington. Eventually, that road leads to Pullman, Washington, which is where he lives, and they're both Pullman and Moscow are small college towns. So, like, there's a lot of logic leaping there. But I imagine during this time, they know it's a, a white sedan. They're just going nuts. They, they do send it. It's not obvious enough where your average person could look at it and go, oh, Hyundai Elantra. I see the symbol. I see the name. They have to send it to the FBI. Right. Who then gives them a range of Hyundai Elantras well, 2011 and well, 2013. Like three different vehicle makes they give. That it could be basically. Well, I see th- a couple different year makes, okay. but they're all Hyundai Elantra from different ranges. But then the logic leap is okay. 
how did they get to him? I mean, they must have been going nuts with pulling every... What the defense ultimately will get access to or would request access to is, well, tell me about all those era Hyundai, white Hyundai Elantras. How many were there? We need that produced. And let's just say there's 200. <laughs> all right. And then which... How many did you look at and why did you discard, let's say, this one or that one? Because they're going to build a case maybe that if the if it is the white Elantra and it wasn't a DoorDash driver, then, and, and let's say the killer didn't walk up on foot, you know, is this a red herring? How did you discard the others? And because they kind of have a logic leap where they're just like, well, and then we kind of just, uh, someone pulls the five cameras in Pullman, Washington at the WSU campus and we decided to take a hard look at this guy's a launcher. <laughs> well, there is a, a reference to his vehicle being stopped. Well, yeah. In that area. And they they were able to get the phone number that he provided to that officer. That That's how they get his cell phone records. But before that, they're already onto his Elantra. Right. So, and they get it by license plate. As a query through WSU... And somehow they do discard any other launchers and focus on him. And that's, that's where if you're defense, you're queuing in going, why? Is it because you see that he's a criminology major? Is it because you are looking on Facebook and you see that he's lanky and mm-hmm. kind of has bushy eyebrows? Well, so <clears throat> for the audience, I, ha- I have a case, or I've had a case recently very much like this, where there was a vehicle that they narrowed in on based on first identifying uh, unique-ish characteristics. And we're in South Carolina, but there is, South Carolina law enforcement uses, probably something that a a lot of law enforcement use, they use like this kind of bird's eye, like accessibility to any and all um, highway-related traffic cameras. And so they basically are able to put it into a database and say, I need all white cars with this make and model this year. And they're able to pull up like, okay, that's, you know, a thousand cars on this day that are moving in that general area. And then they're able to narrow. And so what they're doing is they're ripping up, they're ripping off search warrants as much as they can. So then they're hitting the DMV, local DMV, who are, who lives in the, in a driving distance of this area. And then these, these types of search warrants are, are going out. So I imagine even though we're reading a search warrant for, um, you know, this guy that's charged, there's probably 50 like it that right. we will never know about, um, or maybe his defense counsel will get eventually in the discovery process that will. But they, they did this to a lot of different. Well, here it is. It's right here, November 25th, 2022. You know, they asked law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for a white a white Hyundai Elantra. On the 29th, a specific Washington State University officer queried white Elantras registered for at WSU. Okay, but we don't know how many he actually came up with. Um, as a result of that query, we've got Coburger's Elantra, but what about the others? How many others were there from your query? <laughs> so they're just kind of like connecting the dots based on what they would know ultimately is going to be well, let, good. Let's talk about a legal issue that's near and dear to our heart. Um, so when law enforcement, let's say that officer query provides 50 white Elantras in that making that year time frame they're looking for that are registered at Washington State University. And let's say some of them are, you know, have characteristics that are very much that we're looking for that are living in the area and that have other unique things to law enforcement. If, you know, if you omit that in a search warrant, other like exculpatory information or other hot leads to a magistrate judge when you're seeking to get in order for a search warrant of a house or phone records. Luke, talk to everybody about what that really means under the law. It's a big no-no, and it's based on a United States Supreme Court case called Franks versus Delaware. But officers are supposed to basically be honest with magistrate judges or anybody who's going to decide a probable cause for a case. They're not supposed to just give what they think is good. They're They're supposed to also provide... The fair assessment, including exculpatory evidence, which is evidence of some suspect's innocence, 
or lack of guilt. Um, they're not allowed to make any material misrepresentations or omissions because at the end of the day, by doing that, if you've got, if you, if some officer stumbled across, you know, Cole, Colberger's Facebook profile said, man, look at these eyes on this guy and said, oh man, these criminology wackos. I remember one that I went to school with. I bet he's the guy. I've got a hunch. And then just didn't look at all this other stuff or found another white Elantra registered at WSU, ran a criminal history and saw the guy had a prior assault or prior rape, but yet ignored that <laughs> and only focused on the one, then the problem at the end of the day is the defense lawyer can challenge that the, basically the magistrate judge was not given a fair shake. They weren't given all the evidence to decide about whether they should say yes or no to the warrant before them. And basically, if they win, you can get all the evidence that was a result of it suppressed. So phone records or DNA. So there will be there's a lot of kind of logic leaps here. Like I'm very curious. I mean, they're they're clearly focusing in. They're on the right track, assuming that the assuming the white Elantra is not a DoorDash driver, and assuming the killer didn't walk up on foot. They're on the right track to rule in or rule out the white Elantra. But because they zero in with mu without much else, there are places to attack this if you're a criminal defense lawyer, which we are. But they basically end up getting a plate. And this plate, just on a sheer canvas of Koberger's, you know, they physically put eyeballs on it at his house, ran it, saw that he had been stopped, saw that he had given a phone number, and they went and took the liberties of getting his cell phone which helped them tremendously because it shows some, per them past attempts to canvas the area now i don't know how specific it is they say 12 attempts now how close does he live to where the it's 10 miles so a 10 mile kind of <clears throat> these are uh, college town right two different college towns pullman and moscow but you don't know like if you're at a local coffee shop, is that pinging off the same mm -hmm. side of the tower as the victim's residence? You know, what you want is something a little more granular, but it's great for these kind of broad strokes. And, search and just speaking on cell phone towers, so, you know, your your phone is constantly looking for the closest tower. And so when law, for, law enforcement puts in a probable cause affidavit that a suspect has been canvassing an area because they're within cell phone towers. So, t so when they pull this data, it looks like a giant V and it's, and it's, it's not like GPS data. It's not that accurate where you can really pinpoint. These are big vectors, miles of, of area between cell phone towers. So you're in a vector um, that could cover, you know, three miles of space and territory until the next tower picks up your phone. So honestly, I, you know, th this is pretty interesting area of science, you know, in, in hiring experts that read this data, there's a, a huge amount of subjectivity. So they basically pull these topographical data charts and you can, if you're showing this to a magistrate and we've got some geographical data charts here, I mean, you can have an analyst that puts a line uh, in a bubble that can exaggerate kind of really where a car could be. So anyone, any analyst that's actually kind of making it look like a GPS data chart is putting their subjectivity and their bias into their report. Because really, you can't do that. All you can do is say you're in a vector that could cover a certain amount of mileage until it gets the next cell phone so or cell phone tower. So that's important to note because I've seen it done in a very subjective way. And so we don't, we don't have any idea how it was done in this case, but it is not like GPS. So right, so they really zero in on him. They like the look of his, his license photo. And once they get the cell phone based on what we have so far, they're really running with it. And it does help corroborate a lot of what they're showing, but they're like, this is the rub for we biased defense lawyers is the, the night in question, they claim to have his car kind of cranking up, 
closer to almost three in movement and then it's, we don't have any data, which they say, well, it's turned off. It could be because it's turned off or in bad service area or doesn't have some proper connection. But in our training and experience, we know what to mean for a real smart killer who's planning his move. He knows he doesn't want a cell phone to bust him. So he turns it off. And as, and as you will note later on in the affidavit, he did apply to the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. And he wrote in an essay, he had an interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. So they're like, aha, he thinks he can help collect data so he knows to turn his data off. But this is also what we call the absence of evidence. So this is one of those scenarios we had a prosecutor one time in court say, judge, sometimes the absence of evidence is the evidence. And it's just one of those things, it's like in the Murdoch case, where if he had an extremely bloody shirt, then guess what? He's guilty, and that would have been used against him. Because he didn't, well, guess what? That's evidence, and it can be used against him because he stashed his shirt. So similarly here, we're seeing a pattern with law enforcement to take the absence of evidence and use it in an affidavit against him. Right. And if I'm you know, his defense lawyer, I'm like, uh, well, he went out on a date and either turned his cell phone off out of respect or his, I could say he went out for a drink and his cell phone was running low and he realized it and on the ride back home was charging it and it finally turned back on. I mean, there's a million different ways to explain that, but law enforcement wants to say he's a killer who's making his move and doesn't want to be seen by his cell phone. So that's they will use the absence of evidence as evidence in this case. Interestingly enough, it does kind of wake up and start recording data a little bit prior to him being back at his house per law enforcement's analysis. So that would almost so here's it'd be kind of like pulling back up to the resident. So and I'm looking at the return of the of the search warrant, and so. Again, for people that are not trained in the law, you've got the affidavit on the search warrant, which is the reason why you're asking a, a judge to give you power to seize this evidence. And then they always have a return, which basically um, is a record of what they seized um, based on the search warrant. I don't see a phone on the return. Am I looking at this wrong, Luke? Well, that's because that's his house in Pullman and, and he probably had his phone with him. Okay. When he was arrested in Pennsylvania at his parents' house. Okay. So we need to, so the likelihood of him having his phone on him is high. So I guess my, my point would be we're going to get a whole lot more data potentially from a, a Cellbrite phone extraction. Right. That will, that could tell us a lot. Right. And so the phone doesn't really wake back up until 4.48 a.m. of that night after they claim it left the residence at 2.47. So still, that's, that's a long time. That's way more than a drive. And again, you know, the car is supposed to be seen speeding away at 4.20. And it really didn't get back to the house until 5.26. So I'm sure law enforcement will say, well, this is when he's getting rid of bloody clothes, getting rid of the knife, the mask. But if I'm defense counsel, I'm creating alibis in other ways and tracking financial records and saying, all right, well, where were you, buddy, if you weren't there? And trying to fill in the gaps in a non-criminal um, kind of way. Luke, so tell us about what you know about the, the DNA profile they got from the trash. I don't think we talked about that yet. Yeah, I mean, basically... They've zeroed in on him. They like him as a suspect. They think his phone records show uh, premeditation, a canvassing, a targeting of this residence with these young people. And basically they think they've got enough to search, but also get his DNA. They do get his DNA by figuring out where he is, that he's with his family. I think the semester had ended and they, you know, any uh, lesson to you viewers out there? Any, any by any, um, anything you leave in the trash on the street is fair game for law enforcement. It's not protected. 
It's not like they need to get a warrant for it to collect something that was in your house or in your car. If you put the trash on the road, long line of cases, allow police to rifle through it. It's considered abandoned. You have no privacy rights to it. Tons of drug dealers get busted this way because they'll take this, their stems from uh, weed, all the sticky, icky stems, and <laughs> throw them in the trash, and cops will find some residue at, you know, 412 Drug Dealer Avenue, and <laughs> they will, that's instant probable cause every day of the week if that trash can is assigned to your house to go get a warrant. So, we call it the old trash pool. Right. So what they did is they used that same principle. They knew where he was and wanted samples of his DNA to run against this profile they obtained from the button of the sheath of, of this K-bar sheath. And they claim that it, it is, well, it's not a match, but what they've done, and I'm not sure what kind of analysis they're using, whether it's a proposition set or what, but it's, they can't exclude his father. And so when you do DNA, obviously no one's sitting here thinking the father is the killer. <laughs> I'm sure he's got an alibi. But basically, your Y DNA, in lots of cases, you initial profiling either is, is it's like 900, 990% likely to be everyone else excluded, but we can't exclude your father because you share a lot of the same Y DNA. Um, we once had a, a murder case where... Our guy's DNA was found on a ligature, which is really a bathroom robe um, tie that was supposed to be the strangling weapon, and they couldn't get a match or exclude any other Y family members, meaning men, brothers, fathers, and turned out the brother was a janitor at the same apartment complex working at the time who had serviced the victim's bathroom for a clogged up toilet right where she hung her bathrobe a week prior. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, but this is very good evidence for the state. It will require some further testing. And, of course, they'll want to compare it against things they found, you know, in terms of victims' fingernails and things like that. But they're like, hot dog, most of the world is excluded, but we can't exclude the father. That's because he's a relative. And it's great evidence to get them really any warrant for anything they want um, going forward, for, and a huge piece of evidence just for conviction. Yeah, and I was reading in the paper that one of Koberger's former lawyers um, was kind of, you know, making a lot of fun of that kind of evidence, you know, as it related to the match to the sheath, you know, because, you know, and again, we're not looking at the DNA reports. If we were looking at them, we could decipher this a little better, but he was kind of putting a proposition out there that this could be easily transferred DNA. So if, if his client had shaken the hand of anyone and that person then touched that knife sheath, potentially their DNA could be on it. I'm sure there's a lot of DNA profiles on the knife sheath, including blood from the victims. Um, but I mean, I can think of one, I mean, that, it might seem far-fetched right here, but do you have some sociopath in... Mr. Uh, T.A. Koberger's criminology class that is truly oh trying, trying to figure out how to get away with crimes and shakes this. Thank you, Professor. This is a, a vigorous and stimulating lecture. You really gave me a lot of great ideas and then goes home and straps on his knife sheet. I mean, I'm, so like... That's better than Ozark. <laughs> <laughs> Ozark was great. Ozark was great. Ozark probably is the truth. Ozark. Yeah, if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, Luke had an Ozark theory for Alec Murdoch that they didn't end up going through with, which should, we think should have. They should have. We'll, we'll get to Murdoch uh, here in a minute, too, because um, I know some of you guys have questions about that still as well. But So on the one hand, DNA, I mean, it's great evidence for the state. I mean, what are the odds? But there's ways to explain. I mean, this is a very personal, gruesome scene. Even the, I mean, I don't, I mean, these folks, I imagine, would have tried to fight back. We haven't heard anything about any other DNA found on scene or any injuries to him. Obviously, he's not arrested until much later. But can I say something about that? You said what you said made me think. So 
I don't do that very frequently, but when I do, I like to <laughs> I like to speak about it. But you mentioned it as as a personal type of act, you know this personal murder. It was a, you know I think one of the reasons you said it was personal is because unlike the Murdoch case, this is used the the killings was done with an edged blade. Yes, the murders were done with an edged blade. So what what's the difference between an edge blade and a pistol or a shotgun? A couple different things. Number one, you have to be very close to do this. Mm. It is personal. It is a whenever we are defending people um, with with kind of knife stabbing wounds in, in almost all of our practice, it's always like a self defense scenario in, in most cases because you have to be close quarters. Now you will, we see a lot of stranger killings or revenge killings with firearms. But one thing that I'm sure law enforcement is thinking about when they're profiling this guy is that what what's the big selling point on a knife is that it doesn't leave other evidence. It doesn't leave shell casings. It doesn't leave ballistic imprinting like we saw in the Murdoch case, if you're to really believe that kind of line of science. It is a silent kind of weapon in terms of it doesn't leave anything behind. Well, interestingly enough, it maybe it left a sheath in this case, but if you if you use a weapon like that properly, it's not leaving anything else that would allow for testing against, which is interesting. It also doesn't wake up the neighborhood, which yep. is if you're law enforcement and you think that your your attacker is planning something where he wants to get away with it. I mean, it, shots ringing out in the middle of the night do wake up the neighbors whereas you know, silent stabbing other than the screams and things that might be occurring don't don't have the same likelihood of waking up the neighbors for an immediate detection. And, you know, as, sir, certain knives, you can, a pathologist or somebody can say, well, I can tell by the size of the wound that it, one edge was serrated, one was not, or that probably the blade was an inch wide or inch and a half, but it's not going to leave like the hallmarks of projectile comparison analysis, all that stuff. Now, if you find the knife and it's got a victim's blood on it, well, then that's pretty good. Or if you find the knife and it's completely wiped clean, again, that would be the absence of evidence, so he must be guilty. But if we've had cases where they find the knife or, or our client produces the knife, and there's a lot of pathology testing about you know matching the knife in terms of the length, you know how far it goes into the skin, the, the edge is consistent with the edge of the blade in question. So they can do a lot of that comparison analysis. But yeah, I mean, a knife is really a, a weapon that is not meant to leave a lot behind. So that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Other than certainly a lot of cast off and real, you know, you're going to probably have a, you're going to have, unlike Murdoch, you're not going to have a injury like Paul received to his head from a close range shotgun, but you're going to have blood flinging, cast mm. off. Yeah. All, and all people that. talked about, I think one of the victims, I think her name was Zana. She is like reported to have like put up a pretty good, like fight tune, like had a lot of, um, defensive, wounds. defensive wounds. Right. Wow. And so I'm sure that that, yeah, and so she, I'm sure her fingernails have been scraped and are being run against oh, this DNA profile. So, you know, if this guy is wearing a mask, so we know whoever did this is wearing a mask, but we also know his entire body is not covered because, you know, they were able to see parts of his face to include bushy eyebrows. So, you know, even people that go into a crime scene ready to do the worst kind of crime and they, and they wear gloves and are heavily clothed, when someone is literally fighting for their life, they're pulling up clothes, they're cutting and scraping and biting wherever they can, and you can often pull DNA off of an assailant like that. So whoever has significant defensive mm -hmm. wounds, you know, you really want to be looking for... DNA profiles to match that because I mean I talk about a slam dunk I mean it's one thing to have maybe transfer DNA touch DNA off the button of a knife right. sheath left on the scene it's a whole other thing to have someone's DNA profile um, coming off fingernails I mean we saw how much interest there was in the Murdoch trial mm -hmm. with the small kind of alleles in Ma under Maggie's fingernails 
there was a lot of interest in that, and it, you know, it was never able to be sent to SLED for or to CODIS for testing per SLED policy due to the small sample matter. But um, it'll be fascinating here because we've got you know four victims potentially to find this kind of evidence. Right. Right. Let's talk a little bit. Um, there's been some discussion about the death penalty, especially with like this case. Um, the public defender that's currently assigned to represent Koberger has requested for additional help, but they're having difficulty finding someone, I guess, certified to assist her. So, in what do you Idaho. mean by so, like, a public cry for help for basically death penalty lawyers? She doesn't want, yes, I think it's a she, but the public defender currently assigned to represent Koberger wants, yes, wants like an assistant, assistantship with this case. We've got a really good friend, Casey Secor, at, at, <laughs> at Suzerine Capital Defense, that all he does is he goes around and gets involved in death penalty cases around the nation uh, for people that yeah, are pay. either undertrained to kind of do that defense work. And he often partners up with local um, lawyers to give them kind of a because you know death penalty cases are very difficult and complex cases. Um, so maybe she needs to call up Casey. I thought I had read an article that they had secured some other lawyer to get involved. I mean, obviously she'll have access to her. Oh yeah, Who's to Casey? her office. So there's Casey. <laughs> From a trial we did with Casey. There we are. <clears throat> But he would, yeah, in a case like this where there's going to be a prosecutorial decision about whether to seek the death penalty. I don't know anything about Idaho's death penalty aggravators, but they, I, I understand they have it. Usually multiple killings. Well, this they're talking about this is eligible. I, don't, right. I think we can assume it's eligible. Well, it doesn't mean that the prosecutor will seek it, but right. as high profile as this is... That's a likelihood. So as a, as a defense lawyer, you have to start preparing for that. Really loading for bear, getting kind of your death team assembled, looking for mitigation. But, if you know, usually there's a window of time where the prosecutor might say, all right, show me something. Show me why I shouldn't seek the death penalty. And, well, I'll think about it. And so right now the defense's job is if there's an alibi, if there's something mitigating, if there's a hole in the case... Um, sh put your cards up because, you know, a smart prosecutor should be a minister of justice, not seek the ultimate penalty in a case where they're not certain or a case they might lose because it doesn't look good politically. But obviously a tremendous amount of resources involved on a death case. It, it You know, you go from trying to prove your case where a life sentence may be the outcome for sentencing to it's either going to be life or death if we can prove it. And you have two phases. One's the guilt phase. We're trying to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt the crime's alleged. And if they can, you have the second say, phase where it's just about what is the appropriate penalty. And the state wants to show how bad and premeditated and how unredeemable someone is. And defense wants to show how you know, mitigating someone is, how he's done great work, that he's mentally ill, whatever it may be, to try to get, at least in South Carolina, one juror to latch on to some reason that this man should live. And then, so it's very hard to get um, a death sentence. I mean, if you follow the Parkland shooting where Casey was an attorney on that, one of the worst crimes in U.S. history with all those Parkland students. No reason, no reason whatsoever. And ultimately, it was a case that was about, you know, a life or death sentence. And that team did such a great job in showing that Nick Cruz, due to his mental health and other reasons was someone that didn't deserve to die and in a case that was just an absolute slam dunk then the jury ended up passing a, a sentence of life instead of death so they're not easy um there's a whole different way to select a jury in a death case well we can have a whole podcast on right that. i mean yes yeah, it's but bottom line is right now because the case is death eligible um, we can assume that the defense lawyer, the public defender, if, if she's having an outcry for assistance, you know, she's looking for national assistance on a high-profile case like this. The other thing they're doing is they're, they're, the defense should be preparing this case like it could be a death penalty case. 
They should be doing mitigation investigation. They should be doing a, a battery of psychological testing uh, on this guy and getting prepared. Because like Luke said, if they do a bunch of testing and mitigation and it's a close call, um, I mean, there's a lot of death penalty cases that get withdrawn based on convincing a, a fair and just prosecutor that the individual is not you know, sadistic and malicious, but has other issues going on. I'm not saying that's the case here, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're planning for anything and everything um, concerning this case. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Correcto. And so we'll um, keep following this case and, you know, it'll be a large topic for our discussion on our weekly podcasts. Um, but let's shift into some Murdoch's, just some final analysis here. Pick the bones off this case. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, left no crumbs, as the internet would say. Um, what, what do we think is next? Well, we're going to hear about every single meal he has in, in mm-hmm. prison. Um, A lot of people want to know about Buster and the Stephen Smith situation. You know, I... There's, you know, SLED is providing various updates on, on that. You know, I think there's a lot of mo- public momentum to solve that murder. Um, whether that leads towards other Murdoch family members like Buster or anyone else, I don't know. I, I know if I were Buster, I would be very much hypervigilant about, you know, everything. My social media, my discussions with friends and family, because you know that, due to your father's activities and the public perception of the Murdoch family in this moment in time, that there's a, a lot of public assumption that there's some, something sinister that could have happened. I, you know, I haven't heard anyone close to the actual, now not the rumor mongers, but anyone close to the actual investigation hasn't said anything really that's linking any other family member to that slaying. But, you know, if something came about, like, like I've said previously on other news outlets and our, on our podcast, I mean, there is no statute of limitations in South Carolina for state-level criminal cases. Um, so they, there could be something that evolves, but right now we haven't heard anything, and Buster's keeping a, a very low profile, as he should, um, and you just got to know that SLED is looking at everything. Local law enforcement is looking at everything. There are private investigators that have been hired by the family, to look at things and with enough pressure, you know, I'm confident that something will come from that, whether it's re-examined DNA evidence, other things. And, I, and again, I don't, we don't have eyes on that particular investigation other than that's kind of been a frustrating process for their family. But if I were Buster's lawyer right now, I wouldn't let him leave his house, honestly. Um, and I wouldn't let him really do anything. If I was honestly on, you know, on standby to be concerned about whatever may come, you know, he would be locked down completely as horrible as that is to say, because, you know, he's, he is a victim of his brother and his, and his mom's, um, murders. And so, you know, he's, he's a statutory victim in the last trial. So, but again, I don't think we know anything further about the, that particular investigation, but I think if, if we get developments or any announcements by law enforcement, it'll be heavily covered and we can kind of lend some analysis. But right now there's nothing on that. And I think you have to, I kind of feel like if something were going to come, it would have already come because there was, you know, such a hard look. It's not like law enforcement is not going to look at anything relating to the Murdoch situation. But right now in the aftermath of this just crazy notorious high profile trial you have to think well if something all of a sudden comes out as a key eyewitness to something incriminating you have to really take it with a grain of salt and make sure it's not just for attention Mm. Um, but I don't know that anything's going to come of that but um, notice of intent to appeal has been filed that has to be done within 10 days from the conviction it sounds like Harpootlian and Mr. Griffin are going to do it themselves by the way they're talking a, yep. lot, a lot of times the trial team just has to file a notice to preserve the time frame and then other appellate lawyers will take over because sometimes it's better to have a fresh set of eyes look at the legal issues when you didn't live the case yeah it was hard to be objective when you've lived the case so if, if you think 
the greatest appellate issue is the you know bad character evidence, the financial crimes, and let's say that was the issue that you lost. You know, like let's say I'm Jim Griffin, and I really want to focus on that because the judge let that in over over my objection. Maybe I want to focus on that more than another more salient issue. So, you know. But on the other hand, when you really care and you're really kind of miffed about losing in the way you did, you might put way more time and energy into it. I mean, one time I lost. Well, I I won the murder, but got convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and I was so engaged in the case that I wasn't satisfied with appellate defense, which is kind of the public defenders of the appellate process in South Carolina who are all great, but I was, I took it away from them and ended up having kind of a successful appeal for seven years pro bono that I know you were really happy about. No. Um, on our one appeal. We don't like to do appeals. No. We like to win the case early on and then you don't have to do the appeal. That's right, easy work. But um, I think they're gonna do it themselves and they'll have plenty of time to do it. There's going to be a massive transcript that has to be ordered. I'm sure they'll consult with other folks to do lots of appeals. Um, they're very academic over there um, between Mr. Griffin and Harpootlian and their associates. So I think they'll be well equipped, but I'm sure they'll consult and look for the best issues to raise. And then the appellate lawyer for the Attorney General's office was sitting in trial all six weeks, Mr. Zelinka, Right. And he even did a witness. He did one witness. He did? Yep. Uh, I forget who it was at this point. but so, so their main appellate lawyer was there throughout the entire trial. You know, So he'll be very familiar with the issues. What else is on the dock for today? <laughs> well, I, I guess I'll just say this. Uh, the one thing as, as we're unraveling the evidence as it is, like onion layer one for Koberger is... He did not give a statement. He remained silent. Unlike Murdoch, who gave ultimately four statements, he has kept his mouth shut. And, you know, we're big proponents at our firm of, you know, the most innocent man in the world, keep your mouth shut. The most guilty person in the world. F-T-F-U. Keep, keep your mouth shut. So then you don't get crucified on inconsistencies because you can never tell the same story twice the same way. Mm -hmm. Not three times the same way. Certainly not four times the same way. So, you know, we did want to talk about the importance of not giving a statement. And, you know, in such high profile cases uh, and on big cases like a murder investigation, much less a, a quadruple murder case, law enforcement is very much pressing hard to get that confession. Because I know almost 100% of the time if they get a confession, it is over for the defense. It, it is over. And so, you know, we talked about how highly trained most uh, seasoned homicide investigators are on getting a confession. And, you know, Luke, I think we had mentioned, you know, a past example we wanted to give about how a false confession can be produced when, when someone does choose to give a statement, how it can turn in a way that most average people cannot imagine. Cause no one can ever imagine that they would admit to doing something as heinous as murder if they didn't actually do it. Um, Luke, you want to sh share a little fact pattern? Well, yeah, I mean, we could almost spend a whole podcast on that, but I mean, long story short is false confessions are real law enforcement can be highly trained to use certain techniques to get a confession out of suspects. The problem is it's very effective at getting confessions out of guilty folks, but it's also very effective at getting confessions out of innocent folks. So I once represented a young man and when I first met him, about 18 years old, not, not the sharpest tool in the shed. And I'm like, he's, I'm like, well, you're charged here with a home invasion and rape. These are very serious charges. Did you talk to police? And he was like, yeah, I said I did it, but I'm innocent. And I was like, wait, wait, I don't know. He's like, yeah, I wrote a statement everything. He basically told me what to say, and I said I did it. And now I'm really worried. I'm like, well, yeah, you should be, because this charge carries 15 years to life. And so long story short is, there was a very bad home invasion rape of a woman in kind of a low-income area, and they didn't really have any leads. She didn't see her attackers. They were behind her. And 
ultimately they would canvas some neighborhood kids who, you know, threw my client's friend in the mix as a named suspect who was friends with the woman's son. And, and then they went to him and pressed him really hard. And he falsely confessed. And who else was with you? We know there was two, two assailants. And he just threw my guy into the mix. And so then it came to my guy and said, your buddy confessed. We got you. It's going to be so much better for you if you tell if you come clean now. And so my very naive, you know, not sharpest tool in the very, shed very kid young client said, "Yeah, I did it." And he wrote a statement that you know was inconsistent with actual facts in the case, like whether he used a condom or not, or where, where did you throw the condom and things like that. So I'm stuck dealing with this case that what he said is inconsistent with the evidence, but what he's confessed to is terribly damaging and basically we investigated we figured out some concepts of who was more likely a suspect some other associates of the woman's son and thankfully we were exonerated by dna that showed the actual real rapist came up on dna from semen um, thankfully and it had a codis hit and our guy was completely ruled out and thankfully the prosecutor dropped the case, but he spent about a year in jail and he falsely confessed under, under pressure. And, you know, it probably, I don't know, I wasn't in that interrogation room. I know the officer and it wouldn't surprise me that he would have the capacity to really lean into a young, naive person, but it, it might not have taken very much because it's kind of like a bear being in a trap, the concept of false confessions. When your foot is in a trap, you would almost chew off your own foot to get out of that trap. You know, hurt yourself, incriminate yourself to get out of this trap that you were in. And that's really the psychology in a nutshell behind false confessions. Right. So it does happen. But one thing that uh, Brian Koberger's lawyer will not have to deal with is any kind of statement uh, at all as he asserted his right to remain silent. So um, I guess stay tuned on any new revelations on the Coburger case. Um, We were just analyzing some of the first bits of it kind of for this episode. And like I said, we're going to have many, many layers in that case. It's going to be very interesting um, to see what happens. It'll also be very interesting to see if they end up um, seeking death and they need the help of our our friend Casey (laughs) Secor. He's going to love that. Yeah. Um, this was episode 11 of Bring the Jury. If you guys ha- like find any interesting developments with this case, feel free to comment those on some of our other videos. Um, any questions that you may have, we'd love to hear from you all. And then tie those into our future episodes. So stay tuned for episode 12, where we will continue to analyze the Idaho student murders. This has been Luke, Brian, and I'm Hannah. And we look forward to seeing you all next time. And this is Bring the Jury. Bring Bring the Jury. Did I say it? Bring the Jury. Thank you so much.